Julie Smith, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Not a problem at all. I'm just, I'm really excited to have you on. I've, I've, doing this podcast, I've kept in touch with Coford Books and, and talked to them about various things that they've been putting out over the last couple of years. We've interviewed lots of authors of, of the work that they're publishing. And you're one of those that's on my short list of people I wanted to make sure I got to because I'm just so fascinated with the work that you're doing in, in scriptural studies. And, and as I was telling you before the interview started off the record, I, I feel like the church is at this, uh, precipice moment where over the next few years, maybe the next couple of decades, it really needs to decide whether it's going to, um, take a more informed opinion of, of scripture and scholarship around scriptures. And if we're going to kind of catch up with biblical studies that have been done outside of Mormonism. And, and I just love the work that you're doing. The book we're going to talk about today, Julie Smith is the author of the book, As Iron Sharpens Iron, Listening to the Various Voices of Scripture. I love what you're doing to get us to kind of wrestle with these things. But before we jump into that, would you mind sharing with us just a brief bio? So for the, a few listeners who aren't out there on the blogger knackle and, and seeing you and, and reading and hearing your voice, they'll get a little feel for who you are. Sure. So I live in central Texas, just north of Austin. I've got three kids. I homeschool them. A long time ago, I did a master's degree in biblical studies at the Graduate Theological Union, which is in Berkeley, California. Since then, I've done some blogging. You mentioned at Times and Seasons, I've been there over a decade, and I'm the book review editor, and done some publishing of different things and speaking and teaching and that sort of thing. My big project now is I'm writing the volume on the Gospel of Mark for the BYU New Testament Commentary Series. I'm also on their steering committee, and I'm on the executive board for the Mormon Theology Seminar. Beautiful stuff. I, I want to start off by you sharing with me and the listeners like your love and your emphasis of scripture and what's what's led you to go down a path where you're diving deep into scriptural studies maybe just walk us through like what what took you to that point i don't know if i have a great answer for that it's honestly almost a compulsion um when i first started working on my mark book and i invited these stacks and stacks of commentaries and monographs into my house i realized i would look at them sometimes and i would have that same sensation i had when i was in middle school and i saw a cute boy and i don't really know where this comes from um i feel like it's a little more in control of me than i am of it but i've just always been fascinated by the scriptures and particularly by what i like to call non-androcentric readings of them and literary readings of them Great, great. The, this book itself, uh, it's kind of a, it's a neat book. And I, and I hope, you know, as we go through here, I want to read a couple of little sections of two of the chapters so that people get a feel for what you're doing. But you're really, again, calling for us to kind of wrestle with, with the different writers of scripture and different prophets within even the restoration, uh, as well as the Old Testament and New Testament. And I wonder if maybe you can just help us, like, explain where the idea for this book came from and, it, it's such a new and fresh way in which to tackle scripture. Maybe how you you came to a place where you said, man, this would be a really cool thing to do. Sure. So a while ago, I read a book by Matthew Schlimm. He is a non-LDS biblical scholar. And the book is called The Strange and Sacred Scripture. And his basic premise is he's trying to help folks who find parts of particularly the Old Testament, but the Bible in general, extremely hard to understand 
uh, when approaching them from a modern point of view. So what do we deal with? Um, how do we deal with it when it looks like the Old Testament features God commanding genocide or condoning slavery or requiring women to marry their rapists? And so that's what he's doing in this book is trying to give folks a framework for thinking about it. There's a very brief section of the book, it's less than two pages long, where he writes a fictitious dialogue, and it's between Ruth and Ezra. And if you'll remember, Ezra is the one who commanded the Israelites to divorce their foreign wives. Ruth, of course, was a foreign wife. And dialogue is completely fictitious. They're not even alive at the same point. But what he does is sits them down and has them each argue their case for whether marriage outside the covenant is legitimate. And it's done in a very civil manner. And this section of the book just really stuck with me and resonated with me. I had never seen anything quite like it. And I thought it was such a great way to convey to people that the scriptures often speak with more than one voice. There are often some real disagreements there. And so he worked that out. But it was also done in a very civil way. He doesn't really permit either of them to win the debate, but just to engage each other. And as I thought about this over the weeks, I thought, you know, I know a lot of really smart people, and I want them to write me a book like this, because I wanted to read a whole book like that. And so that's what I did, is I recruited a lot of people who are some way or another involved in Mormon studies, and I asked them to contribute. And so that was the genesis of the project. Yeah, and I, sh- and I probably should correct myself. You're the editor of the book, although you are the author of, of one section, which I want to ask you a question about um, towards the end. But you've picked each of these people, and, and each of these folks who have contributed these dialogues between uh, people of the past within within Scripture and within the Restoration, like it feels interesting. Like as I'm reading several of these, it's not like there's this disconnected difference from one to the other. It's almost like everybody you got on board was just that, on board and on the same page. How hard was it, let me say that again, how hard was it to have um, all of these folks contribute and yet the book kind of have this almost consistent feel throughout as these conversations happen? You know, I'm glad it felt consistent to you because one thing I struggled with is that every author took it in his or her own direction. And you'll notice even if you just look at formatting issues, some have footnotes, some don't, some have introductions, some don't, some have a more academic tone, some have a more speculative tone. And I realized it was inconsistent with the nature of the project to exercise a heavy editorial hand, right? After all, our entire theme is a multiplicity of voices. So I didn't didn't clamp down to any great extent. Um, so I'm glad it felt to you like there was some cohesiveness there, because from my perspective, it did feel like the contributors did go in slightly different directions, which I was pleased to see. I felt like each writer brought different strengths and a different perspective. And so I was really very, very pleased with how it turned out. Yeah. And and I agree, like there certainly is differences from author to author, but there's this there's this cohesiveness as well. And I just it, it really came together well. The one section I want to start off talking about is Joseph and Jacob. It's Joseph Smith and Jacob from the Book of Mormon. And and I find this to, to be just just really good the the way that um that Mark Decker put this together. And and I just want to read a little bit of it to give the, the listeners just kind of a feel for this. But it goes it's this back and forth conversation. And so you have Jacob starting off and he says, Brother Joseph, I have a serious question for you. And then Joseph jumps in and says, Ask, Brother Jacob, ask. I always enjoy our discussions. Jacob then says, So do I, Joseph, so do I. But right now, I really want to know what you thought I meant in the second chapter of my book. I want to know what you thought when I said that even though God himself 
had told me that I had to speak to everyone about the men who were justifying themselves and taking additional wives and concubines, I felt that polygamy is such an unseemly subject that I worried that my sermon would trouble the women and the children who were present. Then Joseph jumps in. He says, well, initially, I just wanted to make sure I was getting the translation right. Jacob says, of course you did. But what you, but what did you think later after you implemented the principle? Then Joseph jumps in. I suppose you had my sympathy. After all, the kind of polygamy that was practiced in your day was not authorized by the Lord. I wasn't surprised that God was upset because of the selfish actions of the men you were actually addressing hurt the women and the children who had to hear you. And, and it goes on, and you can feel, even from the beginning of the conversation, that there is this, this charity that each side is extending towards the other, and yet they're both having pressing questions and in uh, strong answers coming back the other way. Was was there any effort, like on your part, as you're putting this book together, did did each of these folks kind of understand that going in, or did it feel, was there anything on your part as far as having to kind of make sure that there was this charity back and forth? Let me rephrase this. When a book like this is written, it, it sometimes can be difficult because you're trying to have this balance, and yet it feels like the book really finds that really well. Was there any kind of struggle on your end editing this to to kind of push people to be more balanced or... Did the, each of the contributors kind of make sure that that happened? I did not have to do any herding of cats on that one. Uh, I did try to make it clear from the get-go that one of the guiding principles of the project was to model civil discourse. And it was really, really important to me, um, in addition to the content, right, that we're showing these different perspectives in Scripture, that the form did something as well, and that the form modeled for us how we might disagree, and disagree about extremely serious topics, right, extremely high stakes, but do so in a civil manner. I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir to point out, and I'm just absolutely stating what's completely obvious to everyone, that we're a culture in crisis when it comes to lack of civil discourse course. And this may not be our strength as Latter-day Saints, because it can be hard to mesh the idea of eternal truth claims with civil discourse. Because if I'm right in an ultimate sense, doesn't that in some way negate my obligation to civilly engage your error, right? This is a very, very hard thing to do. And I was actually just having a conversation with my husband today about the tendency we have at church to avoid conflicting opinions. And so we don't often see it modeled where folks disagree agreeably. So it was really important to me, and I did make it clear from the get-go with this project. So that was really one of the goals, was that the the disagreement uh, could be fundamental, it could be serious, it could be unresolved, but it needed to be handled civilly. And and I didn't I didn't have to correct or berate anyone on that. Everyone, I think, really got the vision and followed through with that idea really, really well. Yeah, it was really good. And and the, you, you bring up this point, like the first thing that comes to my mind as I'm reading through this is as I've gone through my own faith transition and and kind of left a black and white world and, and kind of realize all that comes with that, as I'm listening to these conversations, it, it just feels like this call to kind of wrestle with with scriptural interpretations and a kind of a recognition, right? We go to Sunday school and, and church in our three hour block and, and the lessons done in, in gospel doctrine. And we draw these really simple paradigms and perspectives. And we don't really ever deal face to face with the paradoxes or contradictions that are in there. 
And yet this book is calling us to kind of work with that. But as you draw attention to it, you're also setting an example for the rest of the church to how to have tough conversations about tough issues where there's very strong disagreement. And and again, I, I think the book just encapsulated it so well. And, and I really look forward to things like this having an impact on Mormonism. One of the other sections is between Thomas and Abraham. And there's, there's I don't know what the exact number is, but what is there, about 13 sections or so? That's about right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and so one of them is on Thomas and Abraham and this idea of doubt and, and knowing. And, and that's such a, such a crucial issue right now in Mormonism. And you have Abraham kind of poking at Thomas a little bit and and you have Thomas, again, just extending this incredible amount of charity. I want to read just a little bit of this. Abraham says, greetings. Thomas says, greetings back. Abraham says, may I draw you some water? Thomas says, I'm grateful, sir. I'm parched and weary. Says, the old man lowers a bucket and brings up sloshing cold water. With an ancient gourd dipper, he takes an offering from the wooden pail and hands it brimming to the younger man who drinks it messily, slacking his thirst aggressively. Thomas says, what a strange place. I don't know how he came here, but I know you, Father Abraham. The older man nods and likewise takes a drink, avoiding the younger man's gaze. Thomas says, and you know me. Abraham nods somewhat curly, curtly. Abraham says, the doubter. The younger man smiles. I prefer Thomas. Abraham, I do not remember how I came here. Thomas says, nor do I. Yet I know who I am. I remember my life and I know who you are. But I know only what I've learned from you from the scriptures. How strange. You are like a story come to life, but without the fullness gained in really knowing the person. The odd man, the old man nods. Abraham says, it is the same. Thomas says, Father Abraham, whatever brings us together, it is an honor. You have been an example and a hero to me throughout my life, the father ancestor of us all. I have bragged my whole life. I am the seed of Abraham, of your seed. Even the deity identifies himself as the God of Abraham, the friend of God you are called. The younger man bows low. The older man considers the younger man, then nods and motions to the ample rock upon which he is sitting. The young man accepts and sits somewhat stiffly beside Abraham. And then they get into this neat conversation. Abraham says, And you, you yourself, you walked with he whom we all worship. Yet I know only that you refused the testimony of your fellows when he returned as promised. How is that possible? You who walked with him, How is it that you doubted? The younger man is silent for a while. Then staring into the wilderness, he speaks. Thomas says, I knew him well. Master, we called him. Our teacher. We walked miles together and had many conversations of lilies and foxes, of lands and seas, of the future, yet things were never as clear then as they were in retrospect. Looking back, I can read the portend of his words that we missed when he spoke them. He talked to us in parables at times so enigmatic and puzzling that they seemed but nonsense, children's stories. As at others he spoke with such clarity that there was little question whereof he spoke. Still we trusted that he was the one who would bring the kingdom of God. And and again, the conversation continues and, and Abraham's pushing a little bit and Thomas at every turn is extending this charity and trying to help Abraham see that in reality we all doubt and and these conversations, they're just beautiful. And I, I really hope that if any LDS you know members out there listening to the podcast, you just want a really interesting book. This was just a lot of fun to kind of flip through the pages and see 
hypothetically, these people that we kind of think we have a feel for who they are and, and then to kind of see them in this three-dimensional way to work with someone opposite of them in perspective. Um, Julie, I just want to say you and those who contributed this book, you guys nailed it. Um, just really good. Thank you very much. Let me point out that one you were reading from was written by Stephen Peck, who's, as you know, very, very talented. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Um, again, hope that people will pick this up. I think it's one of the most fascinating books that have come out on Mormon, in Mormonism this year. Uh, I do want to get a little bit into kind of the, the, not necessarily in the individual subjects, but the overall theme. And, and I want to just say that Joseph Smith has this quote where he says that improving contraries that truth is made manifest. And I know I'm probably chopping the thing up to pieces, but that's, that's the gist of it. And, and this book does a brilliant job of, of putting these paradoxical personalities or perspectives side by side and kind of helping the reader um, to prove contraries. Maybe your thoughts on the quote from Joseph Smith and, and maybe just generally in Mormonism, how important it is to kind of deal with contradictions, to deal with paradoxes and, and what that does for us with our own individual faith development. That is such an important question. So if we understand that scripture is not perfect and that every fallen person has a limited perspective and will err, even if they are given the assignment to write inspired scripture, then we need to come at scripture assuming there will be imperfections there, but also assuming there will be inspiration there. And that leaves us with a lot of work to do, right? We we can't just take everything as if it were perfect. Uh, I think if you do that, there's an element of mocking perfection. But we have to be really, really engaged as we read and study and ponder to try to tease out what in the canon might be the result of the cultural or other limitations of the writer or what might be applicable in one situation and not in another. So back to the Ruth and Ezra example that inspired the whole project, um, one perspective you could take is that Ezra was inspired for that moment and Ruth was inspired for her moment, or is one of them wrong and one right? These are extremely difficult questions, and so we need to acknowledge that there are these various perspectives within Scripture and then wrestle with what that means, whether we're seeing evidence of error or evidence of limitation or something that should be applied to one situation and not another or a boundary case or something that I think comes out in the theme of the polygamy essay that you started talking about. At a certain point, that essay stops being about polygamy and it starts being about rules and exceptions, which of course is a much broader topic than our thinking about polygamy. And so I like the way I feel like they might have done it differently, but each writer in the collection is grappling with a disparity or a paradox or a difference in the canon and trying to tease out exactly what it means and how it works. And I just, I find this fascinating. I don't find the scriptures interesting when we're reading them as if uh, they contained all the answers in a simple, straightforward way, as if it were an instruction manual on how to use a pressure cooker or something like that. It's not, it doesn't make for very interesting reading. Where it gets interesting to me is where I need to engage in this wrestle with conflicting ideas or paradoxical ideas and figure out what is true and how to apply it to my life. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. There's a, there's the one section that you're the author of, Julie. It's Mark and Luke, and it's, it's this discussion of women's roles. And maybe walk us through for a moment, because I know this is a topic that you're passionate about. Maybe walk us through for a moment, like how you tried to frame that and, and 
what you were trying to kind of encompass with each of the the characters um, in this in this dialogue. Sure. So what I see happening is I see both Mark and Luke attempting to honor and empower women, but I see them doing it in almost opposite ways. And so I thought it would be interesting to have that articulated. I think it it comes through in a subconscious way in their text. I don't know that either one of them, if you really could sit them down, would have identified that as an agenda. I think it may have been more an unstated assumption for each of them. So what I had them do is sit down and talk through it. And what I see happening is in Luke's gospel, women are honored for doing the kinds of things women traditionally do, which is caretaking and nurturing and mothering and that sort of thing. And that is how Luke honors women. Mark does it very differently. Mark permits women to enter into spheres and occupations and activities that traditionally women are limited and not permitted to do. And so that's how Mark does it. And these are obviously quite opposite approaches. So it's interesting to listen to them talk about it. And what I find most interesting is we are, in a sense, almost 2,000 years later, still having exactly the same conversation about women's roles. And folks today who are more traditional or conservative honor women by honoring the kinds of things women traditionally do. Folks who are more progressive or liberal advocate for women being permitted a greater sphere of influence. And I think it can be very helpful to recognize that both of those perspectives are in the canon. And so whichever side of that divide you're on, I don't think you're on fair ground if you're demonizing the opposition because their perspective is in the canon. But it's also important to realize uh, whichever side you are on is in the canon. And so there's a case to be made for it. And that was what I really tried to do with that piece is to show that both of those viewpoints are there and that there is quite a bit of tension between them. So you pick out these two. If someone, again, if someone were to say, hey, Bill, give me the, give me a voice that's going to be challenging in scripture on women. Paul said some really dramatic things. Did you, did you have any thought cross your mind to like, pull out Paul, or would that have just been too obvious a choice? And, and instead, this gives you more of a kind of an undercurrent wrestle that isn't as in your face. That is true. It's more of an undercurrent. I, th- I think what I found more compelling is both Mark and Luke are telling the story of Jesus's life. And so to see how they shape that to s- tell sort of opposite stories about women and their roles was very interesting to me. Um, it would have been interesting to have Paul sit down with either of them or with both of them. But Paul, I think, is speaking a little more generally to women's roles and not embedding women's stories into narrative. And so I thought it was interesting. The other reason it's interesting is historically the view has been that Luke is more of a friend of women. Many of the stories um, that we're familiar with about women in the scriptures, you know, Mary and Elizabeth, that sort of thing, uh, Mary and Martha. Those are known from Luke's gospel. And I thought it would be interesting to put a little bit of a challenge to that. And Mark does that implicitly in my dialogue to say, you know, from my perspective, from Mark's perspective, that's not really being a friend to women to limit them to the roles that society has prescribed for them. And so I thought that was a very interesting conversation to have. Yeah, I thought it was a really good choice. I I think Paul would have been the easy one to go to. And yet you picked, I think, the more difficult in, and I think the more intriguing conversation between these two, and again, just uh, I can't speak highly enough of, of what came out from that. Um, I want to talk maybe a little bit away from the book and, and just your personal view of scripture as you've spent 
so much time delving into these topics and recognizing the biblical studies that are out there, both in the church and out of the church. Um, and, and I'll just share maybe a personal story and, and maybe get your thoughts. I grew, I mean, I, I certainly was aware of Mormonism's deeper issues. Somehow I made it to about the age of 30 thinking and feeling compelled that the only option I had was to interpret biblical stories, especially the Old Testament as, as literal, just exactly the way that like fundamental Christianity and fundamental Mormonism would interpret those stories. And, and then I get to be 30 years old and, and somehow I discover that, you know, President Kimball says that, uh, Eve being made from Adam's rib is figurative and Elder McConkie talks about the trees in the garden being figurative and Brigham Young talks about the dust that Adam's made. And so we get like three or four or five quotes that seem to give us a little bit of space that the garden and the creation and the fall on some level, there's some figurativeness there and they're really they're really some leaders are drawing lines, but but I don't think most leaders are drawing lines on those things. And so you feel like there's this space to kind of work through that. And and then you feel like as you as you take that step and begin to see that there may be figurative possibilities in those early stories, you begin to extend those out and and you wonder is Job a real person? Is Noah a real person? Is Moses or Abraham? And and I wonder what your thoughts are, Julie, on the space within Mormonism to hold certain aspects as figurative and and maybe kind of if you want to share where you kind of role with each of these stories, um, maybe just personally how you work to reconcile these things in your own mind. Great question. And as I'm sure you know, your experience is not at all uncommon. So um, it's hard to know where to start with that. Okay. I find questions about historicity. That is, did Noah really exist? I find those questions terribly boring. And the reason I find them boring is I find them ultimately unprovable. And part of this comes from closely studying the Gospels. So the first three Gospels are called the synoptic Gospels. That means seeing with one eye. The idea is they're basically fairly similar. John is kind of an outlier. I happen to have three boys, my three little synoptics in the house. And I am used to hearing mutually exclusive historical narratives from them. And I don't enjoy it. And so I come to the Gospels with this and think, this is not interesting for me to try to wade through and sort of weigh did this happen? Did that happen? How do we know what happened? Ultimately, these questions are unanswerable. Okay. And so they're not terribly interesting to me. Um, I would not have any interest in reading a journal article or a monograph about whether Jesus cleansed the temple early in his ministry as John depicts it or at the very end of his ministry as, as Mark depicts it. That is not interesting to me because ultimately you can't figure that out. Um, really any more than you can figure out which one of your children stole the cookie or whatever. What I do find fascinating is to consider how that story functions in each gospel given where it's placed. And in John's gospel, it's sort of a, uh, a cleansing of the slate introduction to Jesus's ministry. In Mark's gospel, it's embedded in the story of the cursing of the fig tree. Half of that happens before the temple action, half after. 
And it's sort of an enacted parable of that. They're very related to each other. And I think it's, we'd call it an object lesson today. I call it an enacted parable as basically Jesus acting out a parable with his action in the temple, signifying the destruction of the temple. So very, very different function. And we could also talk about how in Luke and then into Acts, the temple is still useful to the disciples, even though it's corrupt. In Mark, it's not. In Mark, Jesus is done with it. And these issues to me are fascinating. So for, I'm, I'm just drawn more strongly to literary issues. Now, um, I'm not a complete relativist. There are some times when we can look at the genre of a kind of writing and we can say Jonah is satire. The odds of this being historical are virtually zero. <clears throat> Incidentally, not because I believe that God couldn't rescue someone who was in a whale. I believe in an all-powerful God. I don't have a problem with that. But Jonah walks into the city, says as curtly as he can, repent or in 40 days God's going to destroy the city. He's like the worst missionary ever. And then guess what happens? Everybody from the king to the animals repents in sackcloth and ashes. That is not how the world works. So to me, that's the flashing red neon sign that we are reading a satire. And Jonah is a brilliant satire. If you tell that story right, it is hilarious, but it's also profound. And it raises fascinating questions about what we value and how we value it and how we serve God and what we expect from God when we serve God. So there are some situations like that where I'm fairly comfortable coming down on the side of something being ahistorical because of what we can tell from its genre. But generally speaking, I find these questions unanswerable and not interesting. And that's just sort of my personal take on them. Now, when you start talking about Jesus's miracle stories, I think there is some shaping there. So, for example, when Mark says the grass was green at the feeding miracle, I think that's done to make a connection to some Old Testament texts. I would not bet any amount of money that the grass was actually green that day or that anybody had noticed the color of the grass. So those are details. In terms of actual what we would today call, but what I think would be unfair, fabrication of a miracle, I think it's possible. I think it's somewhat unlikely, but it's possible. I do think it makes a difference in your theology if you are saying, I think this miracle is fabricated because I don't think Jesus could multiply loaves and fishes. Because now we're not really talking about this particular instance. We are talking about Jesus's abilities. And so to me, that's a separate question. As a matter of faith, I don't have any issue whatsoever with the idea of Jesus having that power. Uh, if you gave me any particular miracle story, how, the questions about how much it had been shaped or formed by the writer, I don't have an answer for. And again, I'm far more interested in the literary issues of what's happening in that miracle and what it's teaching us about Jesus's character than whether any details or the miracle altogether are historical. The one exception I would make there is it matters to me if the resurrection is historical, um, I'm not terribly concerned about the virgin birth. I don't know why. I'm just not. But it matters to me that the resurrection is historical, and I accept that as a matter of faith. But I also don't think that a historical resurrection is something you could prove from a text. That's just not something a text can do. It's a matter of faith. Did that answer the question? It, it did. And I, and I want to follow it up because right now in Mormonism, you had, uh, you had Patrick Mason and uh, Grant Hardy uh, at the at the recent Fair Mormon conference, and they're both kind of pleading for us to kind of create some space. And and Grant Hardy makes this this note in his talk that that he thinks that p- 
people in the church, members of the church, could hold a, a non-historical view of the Book of Mormon and still have, have a saving faith. And, and I, I get it, like, whether it's historical or not doesn't really matter if we as a community have accepted this as scripture and that scripture is life changing to us. But, but I would guess that you would at least want the space for people to kind of be able to wrestle and navigate that and not feel like it's being imposed on them, on them that they have to take one side or the other. I feel really strongly about that. Um, we need to make space for everyone. That's an issue that Elder Holland brought up in the PBS interview. It's an issue that President Uchtdorf brought up in the your testimony. You know, we don't have signs on the chapel door saying your testimony must be this high for you to enter. We need a lot of space for folks to struggle and reconcile and think. And I would be really, really um <laughs> really, really prioritize welcoming folks who do not accept the historicity of the Book of Mormon or the resurrection or anything else, uh, making them feel really, really welcome. Um, while I was talking, I pulled up a quote that I find really, really provocative and that we might do well to think about. This is from Kenton Sparks in a book called God's Word in Human Words. And he says, on this point, all New Testament scholars agree, Jesus' favorite teaching genre was the parable. Or to put this more brashly, Jesus' preferred genre for conveying truth was fiction. And I, I don't know anyone that would debate that. Left, right, center, evangelical, Catholic, atheist. Jesus' favorite teaching genre was the parable. And so that idea that his favorite way to convey truth was fiction should probably be informing how we think and what we value and how important questions of historicity are. And I also think it gives us a very helpful frame because if I had to sit through a gospel doctrine lesson where we debated whether the parable or the Good Samaritan in the parable was a historical person, I think I'd probably have to poke my eyes out, right? It's just so missing the point, right? The parable of the Good Samaritan, its value and its meaning and what we should be spending our time focusing on has no relationship whatsoever whether there actually historically was or was not a Good Samaritan. It's so pointless and such a waste of time to have that conversation when we should be, should be trying to analyze the story and see, are we acting like a Pharisee? Are we acting like a Levite? What would it take for us to act like the Good Samaritan? What are the obstacles to acting like the Good Samaritan? There's so much work we need to do with that story and have it inform our lives, none of which has anything to do with historicity. So I think we need to be super, super welcoming and just to be clear, um, historical resurrection is important to me personally, but I would advocate really strongly, even if there are folks for whom it is not, that I really, really want them sitting on the pew next to me. Right, right. And I want to, I want to, because we touched here on Jesus, I want to ask you a question. And this is just me kind of going down one of the paths that interests me. But when I look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, it becomes really obvious to me that these books of scripture were written by males, about males, and really feels like it's to a male audience. And and yet Jesus, this is just me speaking, my personal view, Jesus seems to be something different. He he seems to encapsulate more than just the masculine side of things. And and if we take this perspective that, that the story is completely made up, I, I almost would come to expect Jesus to have the the flaws that that the authors have a, a sexist society um a, a you know whatever other flaws that society has i would expect those to come out in jesus and he seems to be something different with your experience julie i just want to maybe get your thoughts 
on it. What are your thoughts on Jesus within scripture, the, the Jesus of faith and, and maybe how you see him playing out in comparison with other, other characters or individuals within scripture? Okay. First, I want to argue with you a little bit. Um, when we talk about authorship as writing, there's very, very little room there for women to be involved in that because literacy rates for women are virtually nil in antiquity, right? Uh, so we don't even have to look for sexist content to conclude that there aren't women participating. We can just look at their literacy rates and say, odds are not an issue. Uh, historically, some folks have pointed at some aspects of the Gospel of Luke, like Mary pondering all these things in her heart to say, you know, it would read that maybe Mary has a hand in the construction of this story or parts of it, at least on some level based on that description. But I want to complicate that even a little more. Um, one of the newest trends, and it's particularly in the study of the Gospel of Mark, but it's been extended to other texts as well, including some of the prophets in the Old Testament is an emphasis on the texts as oral performance. And the analogy you want here is if you think about uh, Shakespeare writing a play or you think about a piece of sheet music, the written document is so totally not the point, right? Shakespeare did not write plays so people could sit in their studies at home and read them alone. The play, the physical written script, is a tool for the performer, Right. And a piece of sheet music is a tool for the performer. The sheet music and the written play by Shakespeare are not the point. There's a huge focus just probably in the last decade of thinking about the Gospel of Mark the same way, that the text exists primarily as an oral performance performed by a variety of storytellers. And the written text is in a lot of ways kind of beside the point or it's a tool for the performers. But in any case, it's not super important. Now, theoretically, this opens up a lot of space for women to be involved because we do know that in antiquity, women are active as storytellers. And then I would argue not just a theoretical space, but solid evidence that they are involved. One of Mark's signature stories is a story of a woman with a menstrual hemorrhage, and the story notes that she felt in her body that her flow of blood was dried up. Now, does this sound like a story that men would tell to other men? To me, it does not, <laughs> okay? Right. Right. And it's even a little bit deeper than just the ick factor, but this woman is compared to Jesus and his sacrifice in a way that literally no one else is in the Gospel of Mark. There's all this sh shared vocabulary about their blood and their suffering and that sort of thing. Again, not the kind of thing I see a guy doing. And also not a story that as an oral performance may particularly resonate with men the same way it would with women. So from this framework of the Gospels as oral performance, you've opened up a lot of room for women. And I think probably explained why the Gospels in particular and Mark in particular have so many stories about women that are really kind of amazing. And if folks listening to this are kind of shaking their heads, it's because we've had 2,000 years of not thinking about how amazing these stories about women are, and so we often don't recognize them even when they're sitting right there. If I can talk for just a minute about my favorite story in Mark, it's the story of Jesus' anointing. Um, the word Christ transliterates the Hebrew word Messiah, if we were to actually translate those words into English, we would have the anointed one. So the way we know Jesus is as the anointed one, the Christ or the Messiah. Now, where in Mark's gospel is he anointed? It's in Mark chapter 14. A woman comes in and anoints him. And then Jesus says, 
wherever the gospel is preached, this story will be told in memory of her. That is a huge deal. And the kind of sexism that has to happen for 2,000 years for us to not be completely blown away by that story kind of boggles the imagination, but nonetheless has happened. Um, and it's really amazing to me, as I've been studying this story for decades, how often it's underplayed in commentaries or in discussions and really just not given very much attention, which, again, there's nothing else like this anywhere where Jesus says, wherever the gospel's preached, you need to tell this story about how I was anointed. And we don't do that. He's given us a heads up that this is a really important story and we ignore him. So I think this is an example of the really radical nature of the gospels that I think is sometimes lost to us because of traditional methods of reading and understanding them. Beautiful. I, I I worry so much that, as you say, we've we've just got this frame where we focus so much on these masculine things, and yet I, I feel for for sisters both in the church and Christianity at large, trying to find something within Scripture that resonates with them. And I love you drawing attention to this stuff. Those are the things that we need to give voice to, and really appreciate that. Would you, would you speak for a moment though on Jesus and? And maybe what your thoughts are of him in the New Testament, this, this, this Jesus of faith, the mortal Jesus, and, and maybe what in your own mind makes him different from everyone else? Well, so you have each of the gospel writers portraying him in a different way, and then each of the epistle writers, and then in Revelation doing the same thing. So we have some different takes or perspectives on Jesus and on what's important to him. I've studied Mark most closely, and it resonates with me most closely. But Mark emphasizes, I think, two things. Um, one is is that Jesus is very service-oriented. In his description of his ministry in Mark 10.45, he says, you know, that he's here to minister, and that that's really the point, right? Um, and that's kind of a big deal. He didn't come to earth to be served, but he came to serve. And I think that's indicative of his character. Another huge theme in Mark is the idea of discipleship. But Mark doesn't say about discipleship what I think most people think he's going to say. Um, Mark has a portrayal of the 12 that, in all honesty, is really very, very harsh. Probably the nicest thing we can say about the 12 in Mark is that they're slow learners. And Mark does not hide this from us. But I think it's done with a point, and the point is to show that even people who mess up a lot can be disciples, and that as long as they are still willing to follow, Jesus is still willing to patiently teach them. And I think, again, because we're used to reading with a different frame, we often miss these messages quite a bit. But those are two things that stand out to me, at least in the way that Mark presents Jesus to the reader or to the listener, as it originally would have been. Good stuff. I, I want to finish up. Uh, again, we're talking with Julie Smith today, um, editor and also author of a part of the book, As Iron Sharpens Iron, listening to the various voices of scripture. Um, I, I just want to get your thoughts. Maybe if you can put on like your prophecy glasses and, and I'm saying that with a, with a smile. If we, if we say, look, the church is at a certain place and how it interprets scripture. And as you're pointing to, like, we want to make this space for people to come in who, who maybe they don't know, maybe they're just barely hoping. Your thoughts on maybe how we go forward or maybe what steps you're seeing as we go forward that, that, that either A, what we have to do to make that space or maybe what we are doing to kind of create that. 
Um, I don't have prophecy glasses, but I do have hopes for certain things. So let me tell you what I hope for. Um, I think everyone knows that over the last decade or so, we've seen an enormous transition in the way that the church talks about its own history. And it's basically gone from a viewpoint that if anything was potentially damaging or embarrassing or didn't fit with our current narratives and beliefs and values, that we would ignore it. And obviously, we've shifted to uh, a much greater level of disclosure, even of issues that are uncomfortable or difficult to talk about. My hope is that we see the same sort of shift when it comes to the Bible. And right now, we are absolutely not doing that. There is a huge disparity um, with the critical approach that the church now takes to its history of talking about everything that could be difficult. Well, I shouldn't say everything, right? But the major issues that could be difficult for someone or that they might hear from another source and might be troubling, those things are being covered. That is not true for the issues in the Bible. And I hope we change on that. I am deeply, deeply concerned. Um, And let me just give you an example. I used to drive my son home from seminary, and I would, of course, want to talk to him about what he had learned and see if there was anything I felt like I needed to add. So he might say, we talked about the first vision today, and I would be opening my mouth to be sure that he knew that there was more than one version of the first vision. And he would say, I didn't know there was more than one version, but we looked at a chart and compared them all, and it was really cool. And I thought, well, even in the middle of Austin, Texas, with, uh, you know, volunteer teachers here, the, the message has definitely trickled down that we need to teach history in a responsible way so kids are not later blindsided. When I compare that, though, um, with the curriculum for the Bible, it could have been written a century ago in terms of its awareness of the kinds of critical issues that someone familiar with biblical studies will bring to it. And I'm very, very concerned that our kids are totally prepared if someone challenges them on uh, different first vision accounts, but they are completely unprepared if someone comes to them and says, you know that Mark and John put the crucifixion on different days. And if we can't trust them to get that right, how can we trust them to get anything right? And there's nothing in our curriculum that acknowledges that that's an issue or gives the students any tools for dealing with that. And so my hope is that that will change sooner rather than later. So that's what I hope will happen. Um, also, though, while I think kids do need to be aware of these issues, As I've already said, um, debating historical issues is not what I find fascinating about the scriptures. Yes, students need to be aware of it, but to me, this isn't where the interest is. And I would hope that we would be more focused on things like symbolism or structure and that we could teach students more about that. If I can tell you one more story, I mentioned that I homeschool my kids. And in general, um, I will try to avoid materials that are... Um, written from a Christian or religious perspective, but no one teaches grammar anymore. I know I sound like a curmudgeon, but I use a grammar program designed by Mennonites because it's a real grammar program, and there aren't a lot of those in existence anymore. And they teach their second graders how to read biblical poetry. This totally blows me away. I think I've met in my life um, outside the world of Mormon studies, literally zero Mormon adults that know how to read biblical poetry. And this is insane because the ability to read biblical poetry does not challenge your faith in any way whatsoever, right? It's just a tool that helps you understand. And I think 
would probably get you 30% of the way towards understanding Isaiah better. Um, it is a tool that, you know, has no difficulties or difficult issues. I mean, this is not polyandry, okay? This is how to read poetry. It's a purely devotional technique that isn't going to be difficult or, or testing for anyone. But we don't do it, and that's crazy. It's such a wasted opportunity, and it makes the scriptures so much harder to understand. About a third of the Old Testament is written in poetry, and we're not giving kids or adults the tools to do this. Um, and that that's very disappointing to me. I find the scriptures fascinating, but I understand why other people don't. And it's because they don't have these sort of very simple, basic tools that would make them so much more understandable. So my hope would be that we would do more with literary approaches and structure so that folks can understand better and appreciate better and enjoy better what they're reading. Does, does it strike you almost disconnected that the church could almost like help itself by giving us some tools to be more critical thinkers of biblical stories and that that would already set up our members to have those skills rather than just throwing on them the messiness of the restoration. It feels like the church would actually do itself a favor by kind of softening that by letting us have those same approaches with with the Old Testament and New Testament first. And that way they could say, well, yeah, the restoration's messy, but it's it's no different than what's happened in the past. And it feels like we don't do that. I think that's absolutely true, and I think that that would be a very, very helpful tool to just realize that the same sorts of mistakes and errors and problems and difficulties have always, always been part and parcel of God trying to communicate with fallen human beings. So I absolutely agree with that. Great, great. Um, just want to just finish up saying thank you so much for being on. Again, Julie Smith, author and editor of uh, As Iron Sharpens Iron. Again, it's a compilation of, uh, of maybe 15 uh, or so essays of these conversations between various prophets um, and writers within scripture and, and including folks from the restoration such as Joseph Smith and these very dynamic, very three-dimensional conversations between these folks that that kind of help us to sort out some of these tough issues that that our faith is is has on its plate at this very moment. I just want to say well done. You are so wise, Julie. You're very articulate. I'm just I'm grateful for your voice right now in Mormonism and look forward to your work going forward. Thank you so much and thank you so much for talking to me. Yeah, no problem. I appreciate it and uh, again, thanks for being on. Listeners, I just wanted to jump back on for just a moment and the interview's over. Uh, I've hung up with Julie. But I just want to make note that, that her books are available at Amazon. You can also order them directly from Coford Books. But uh, just to let people know that we do have a bookstore on the webpage, mormondiscussionpodcast.org. And, and also on that webpage, in the link for this episode, uh, there are the, the links there to purchase the book as well. If you do buy from the bookstore or the link there on the page, it, it does also help Mormon Discussion Podcast. Uh, a small portion of those purchases does go back to help keep the podcast going. Uh, but regardless of where you get the book, um, I can't say enough. I, I tried to emphasize it during the interview, but I can't say enough how incredibly well done this book is. And if you just want a fun read that also helps you dive deep into Mormon theology and Christian theology, um, this would be just a wonderful a book, maybe a stocking stuffer with Christmas here coming up uh, for your friends and family. Uh, but again, hope the Lord warms your shoulders. Hope you enjoyed this episode and just want to say thank you to each of you for listening.